Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show, featuring Jason Zook. In uncertain times, we must change our focus and priorities. This show will highlight social justice issues with the goal of expanding minds and increasing unity, love, and mutual respect for ourselves and our planet. We support the Black Lives Matter movement. Our show aspires to promote social spirituality, which simply means that by coming together, we can solve any of our problems, including the goal of bringing an end to all forms of hate, discrimination, bias, or oppression. We must protect our environment, reform our criminal justice system, and protect every citizen from police brutality. When we come together, it becomes possible to bridge the gaps that plague our society and divide us from within. We the people means everyone. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. This is Jason Zook. We have a special treat today. I have many friends and clients that ask me over the years, what recommendations do I have for anyone who feels overly sensitive to other people's energy? For any members of our audience listening to this interview, I hope you enjoy our topic today. If you feel marginalized or anxious or out of sync with mainstream society, overwhelmed by outside stimulation, or perhaps you're feeling that your gifts are undervalued by society or your peers, listen closely to my interview with Courtney Marchesani today. Courtney Marchesani is an author, and she's on here to discuss her new book, Four Gifts of the Highly Sensitive, Embrace the Science of Sensitivity, heal anxiety in relationships, and con- connect deeply with your world. Courtney's an integrative health coach, intuitive, and healer with an MS in mind-body medicine. She lives in Anchorage, Alaska, and you can visit her online at www.inspiredpotentials.com. It's with great pleasure I welcome Courtney to the show. Thank welcome you. to the show, Courtney. Thank you. Wow, I'm always so like impacted when the intro happens because I'm always still astonished by all that work all that work that I did to get here I uh I welcome you here and uh, you're up in are you up in Anchorage Alaska right now are you yeah I am I'm originally from Pennsylvania so I actually just got back from Pennsylvania visiting my family and I visit Montana a lot so but I do live in Anchorage that's beautiful. I, I, that's amazing. Welcome to the show. I, I deeply appreciate it. First, first thing I want to tell you, uh, I was looking at four gifts to the highly sensitive, uh-huh. and the cover really caught me. I, I like I like the way it kind of is graphically describing what highly sensitive nature is or is like for somebody. And I think you had Howie Severson do the cover, and I wanted to ask you about that design. What made you? He did it. He did it. It was presented to me from Hay House. They they went to him and he, you know, designed it. And when I saw it, I was like, that's really cool. It made me feel like hyperspace. A lot of times <laughs> people who are sensitive, anybody who's undergone any kind of psychedelic experience talk about hyper, hyperspace being more real there than here real. And so that's what I felt like when I saw his cover. Like we were going into hyperspace together, like Star Wars, when the wow. Millennium Falcon goes to take yes. off. And it goes into hyperspeed. Yes. yes. Warp like speed, I should say. Yeah, that really does embody the heart of it. Well, and, and I wanted to ask you, because looking at your book, I want to ask, this question always comes to my mind when I talk to an author like yourself. What prompted you to write 
four gifts for, of the highly sensitive. I started my journey 20 years ago when I had a profound experience and I went to go look for books in the bookstore that could tell me what just happened. <laughs> like, you know, this profound experience. It was a psychic event and I was transformed by it. There's no other way to explain it. I felt changed on a very powerful, deep level. And so I started to investigate and explore what it was. And there really wasn't much. Uh, I went to my local bookstore and I found one book that really touched on what I experienced. And that was Miracles of Mind. And it was written by Russell Targ and Jane Katra. And he was part of the CIA remote viewer program. And he had done freedom of information requests, FOIA requests to get some of that research declassified. So when I read the declassified research of this, that Stargate program, it made a lot of sense to me because it talked about intuitives, psychics, being able to perceive future events that were highly emotional, um, sometimes, you know, deeply profound. And so that made sense to me. And so I always wanted to write the book that I would have liked to have found when I was starting my search. Now, this is a culmination of 20 years of research. And so it's it's advanced. I, I would say it's definitely ahead of its time, but that's good. You know, it'll catch up. People will catch up to it. That's a very profound statement. I love that, though, the way you said it. You wanted to create a book that you couldn't find when you first went looking for it. And now you yeah, I was in my I was in my mid 20s. Here it is. Like, uh -huh. that's powerful. Yeah. That's a powerful statement of intent. And in my opinion, that's something that merits a lot of respect. I, I want to ask you because I'm an, I'm an empath. I have psychic mediumship abilities and I have different, you know, clairvoyance. It just depends on what's going on when I do readings. Mm -hmm. And one of my gifts is also being able to identify other people's gifts through their energy. And yeah. I feel like you're empathic and I feel like you have precognitive dreams. I might be wrong, but I also yeah, yeah. feel like you have strong clairvoyance and that you had to like make sense of that. And I, re I read in your literature, I was talking about your background, that you identified a fire before it was about to happen in a brownstone. And I want to see if you could share that with our audience a little bit. Oh, definitely. I didn't share it. I didn't share it for a long time. You know, it was my personal story, but it was definitely the turning point. It was a turning point. I had had some precognitive dreams before prevention of the fire. One of them was in Missoula, Montana, when I was, you know, getting my bachelor's in psychology. I was married, very young, and we had a daughter at the time. And I had a dream that one of our friends who was a drug dealer, I mean, there's no other way around it. He was a drug dealer and a grower of drugs, of marijuana. And I had a dream that he had driven through a stop sign, <laughs> you know, uh, wow. cops came on the scene, opened up his trunk. There was all kinds of drugs, not not just pot. There was like cocaine and heroin and all kinds of guns. And there was guns in the trunk. And so in that culmination of that dream, he ended up going in front of a judge. His hands were behind his back shackled and the judge was at the rostrum, you know, giving a sentence. So I woke up from that. And of course, I was jarred and alarmed because we knew him. I mean, we had a connection to him. And so I said to my husband at the time, I really think you need to be careful and stay away from him. And he was like, you're being paranoid. You're totally being paranoid. And I was like, no, I'm serious. <laughs> I mean, I saw the stuff in the trunk and he ran blue through a stop sign. And 
So a you month saw later, it. I, mean, <laughs> I saw it. It was a true clairvoyant, what you would moment. describe as a clairvoyant vision. And so a month later, we thought we were sitting in the couch in the living room late night, hanging out. And we're watching the local Missoula news. And here he is on the television in front of the judge with his hands behind his back. And I, I what do you do at, then? You're like, I, oh my I God. At, I looked at him and I went, and I'm ashen white. I know I'm ashen white. And I looked at him and I was pointing. I go, was, I couldn't even use my words. I was like, oh, oh, oh. and he was like, oh my God. And he never really acknowledged it. My husband at the time. And so this plays into the next story, which goes into the fire prevention. So we ended up getting separated and divorced. We moved to Seattle together. I was working at a major trauma center at the time and living on Capitol Hill and, you know, was a single mom. And so I was pressed into service because my girlfriend called to see if she could borrow the truck to move a bed. Our other friend was going to move in with her at her studio apartment, and then they were going to pool their money together and move to New York City. So they were, she was divesting, our other friend was divesting all of her stuff, moving so they could move in together. She called me last minute and said, can you move the bed? So I said, sure, no problem. Tomorrow night, eight o'clock. Okay. Cause that's when our other friend got off work. So I went to go pick my friend up and her two boys. They get in the truck. I never went up into the apartment, the studio apartment. They came out of the curb, got in the truck. And immediately I started to feel the sense like, don't move the bed. Don't move the bed. I heard those words literally. Their audience. Verbatim, <laughs> do not move the bed. And so I thought that it was, I mean, it was weird. I just shook it off and I pushed my feelings down. I just kept driving across town. Life is hard, but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier. Hi, my name is Blue Tulusma. I'm a writer, an emotional intelligence coach, and the host of Humanize with Blue Tulusma, a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. Join us every week here on Electricast as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered. Electricast. And it got it got stronger and louder and louder and louder. And I said to my friend, I feel like we need to go back. I think we shouldn't move the bed tonight. And she was like, I'm sorry we put this on you. I know it's an inconvenience. Let's just push through. And so I was like, all right. So I'm pushing through and we get to our other friend's house or apartment on Queen Anne. It's all the way across town in Seattle. And she gets off work. I'm taking the bed apart, like wicked fast, you know, like trying to get, you know, trying to move and haul it all. Finally, I just had this sense now you need to leave now. And so I dropped everything. I turned to my friend, Rebecca, and I said, we need to leave now get the kids, let's go. And I kind of did an edict, you know? And so our other friend, Amy was like, it's okay. It's cool. We'll do it tomorrow. Whatever. We're driving back. And I just have this sense of urgency. I'm, you know, on single pointed focus. We get back there. I go up in with her to the apartment and the whole second floor is filled with like a sweet smelling. It was like a, a cherry or a fruity kind of smoke. So we're at the door. She's fumbling through a purse, trying to get her keys. The two boys, you know, her boys were probably like six, five and six at the time, are pushing on the door. She finally gets the keys. We all 
opening the doorway and there is a river of wax. I'm no exaggeration, like an inch on the floor and for all the way through the living room in front of the door, the apartment's door. And I'm like, you can't script that. <laughs> I go into the kitchen because I don't know what the heck is going on. I'm like, you know, yet again, just like, I have no idea what just happened. And so I'm in the kitchen standing there just trying to collect myself. And the boys start screaming. Ah, ah, look, look. And it's a very small apartment building. It literally is a three-story brownstone. It's it's just very compact. Everybody can hear everything. And I'm, I go into the living room and I'm like, shh, shh, it's okay. We got here in time. Everything's okay. And my friend Rebecca goes, no, look, look, look. And she's pointing above the candle. Okay. The candle's on the windowsill sitting, but there was a bamboo light shade, like a window shade, one of the roll down window shades. And it was bamboo and it was smoking and it was black. It was dark black. And the smoke was coming off that, that, uh, window curtain, the rolly window curtain. So it was about ready to go on fire. Like seconds, seconds. That was what the, that thin layer of smoke was in the whole apartment building. So we prevented it by going back exactly when we did, or the, the building would have definitely burned. Have so you- I think it, it probably saved lives. You know, Absolutely. I think that intervention probably saved lives. Have you ever figured out what it was that motivated you to go back to prevent yeah. the fire? Yeah. I thought about it for a long time and I sifted through it deeply through my subconscious and through the experience. And, and I think that it was an empathic, intuitive connection to Rebecca, my friend. Cause she knew she left the candle on, even though she didn't remember it, she knew that she, it had been burning. And so I feel like I tapped into her because as soon as she got in the truck, that's when the feeling started. That's interesting. Cause as you were talking about that, I believe energy flows from everything. So while you're describing that, I felt like there was an older spirit of an older woman from a floor below you guys, or maybe that's protective that alerted you and you're saying, I mean, that's what I went. That's where I went first. I went yeah. first to voice means angel or 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 somebody divine intervention yeah it's beautiful it's a beautiful uh, that i maybe was auditorily like tuning into i mean i i went there first because i thought this is supernatural (laughs) there's no way there's no way i have the ability but then over time i started to see that i actually did have the ability and that other things happened and kind of trended that way through warnings and precognitive dreams and the precognitive dreams flowed into the daytime where it seemed like the the psychic or prophetic dreams that I had in the night that were so clear to me, my daytime started to feel the same way, if that makes wow. sense. Have you ever decided what gifts or what abilities you garnered to understand about yourself? Like, do you know if you're a medium? Do you know if you have, even if you don't offer it professionally, but for yourself, I mean, certain gifts and certain abilities give you certain knowledge. I never wanted to be a medium. I went after that experience and I went to every church. I went to every spiritual center. I went to every darn place that I could, that I thought would help me find belonging in a community that could help me understand And so one of the first experiences that I ever had with any of that, like mediumship 
was at a place called the Theosophical Society that was in my neighborhood. It was in Capitol Hill. It was where I lived. So I wandered over there and they had a nice metaphysical section because I started researching and exploring and, you know, looking for these resources. And I joined their church for a while because I thought that this would be a place for psychic development. If that's what it was, I wanted to understand it. And they had a medium there. And he spoke, you know, like with the um, sound and the and the voice of the discarnate spirit. And I just was like, oh, my God, I hope that's not what I am. You know, like there was something I'm a about medium, it. But I'm that, a medium myself. There was something, I know you are, but there was yeah. something about it in my mm-hmm. immaturity at that time that scared me. Like I was I, like, I, I don't really, want that to be my gift. I don't want I that really. to be my gift. And I think it was because I was still trying to fit in to society and to fit into the community that I was in, which was very professional, very medical, you know, my star was rising at the time in the community and I had a reputation. So I didn't want to be that person. But that being said, I have come a long way in terms of mediumship. And I do think that when I'm connecting to the ancestors or I get warnings or I hear voices that that has to be mediumship. Now I've undergone other types of trainings like shamanic training, spiritual trainings. So I I don't necessarily identify as a medium, but I've had medium-like experience is how I would explain it. I can relate. I'll tell you this, being a lawyer for 10 years and practicing law in places like Mississippi for Hurricane Katrina and Texas, I was not eager to let the public know that I had mediumship abilities for a decade. There you it, go. Wasn't, it wasn't until I got to a certain place in my life that I was like, you know what? And it was actually this show that, help me come out of the psychic closet, so to speak. Yeah. That's how that happened. But I'll say, I'll say this, I'll say this. I I respect hundred percent what you're, what you're talking about. Cause I was there myself for a decade. I knew what it was like to not want my, my professional colleagues to, um, to know that I had this ability. When you look at being a lawyer, there's no ethical rules. How do you practice law with a psychic ability? I just don't do it at all. I keep them completely separate from each other. Well, and good for you. Good for you. I mean, I just think that you can apply the abilities to anything, any profession, especially the gifted sensitives who are extraordinary. I mean, they really are extraordinarily creative. They're perceptive. I mean, they are gifted. And I don't use the word lightly. And I thought a lot about it, put a lot of thought into this book because sensitivity was pretty well established. It was still kind of uh, thought upon, especially in clinical circles, as something that Dr. Elaine Aaron just did and, and kind of found herself. And it wasn't really applicable across the field. But what I wanted to do is take what she did and go into the specific creative gifts of the spectrum when you're really far out and talk about hypersensitivity and talk about the physical part of it because nobody had ever done that before. So I've totally come out of the closet because awesome. I've had I've had to say, I'm an advocate. And the reason why I'm advocate is because I've had these experiences. Now, my experiences have been pretty dramatic. They have been. You don't always hear about life-saving events. You don't always hear about precognitions being exactly as they are, (laughs) as they arrive in material reality. But because my, uh, you know, own experiences were so dramatic, it was one of the things that compelled me to talk about it because I didn't want other people, other sensitives who had the same type of clairvoyance or the same type of empathy to feel alone in their experience. I wanted to start a movement so that people could understand, especially through the book, just having the book, that you're not alone. Could the sensitives, as you label them in the book, could that be people who have psychic abilities or psychic intuitives, uh, gifts that are just haven't been aware of what exactly they are doing and, and how it is impacting them? 
Absolutely. I didn't know. I, I didn't, didn't know. know. None of us know. There's not like there's a manual that when you get 12 years old, no. you're given a book that tells you, here's your gift and this is what you do. <laughs> no. And I, I think that that's what I intended to do, that that was my hope, that those were my aims, that we could champion a new way where children are really identified in an, in an early time period and not have to go through a lot of the traumatic reckoning that you go through with exactly. the experiences. Because when you are sensitive, you experience things so much more intensely that those things without support can feel very traumatic. And then it kind of starts a vicious cycle. And so I wrote the book for anybody, any age, any parent of children, or even an adult individual who's never known their whole life. So they can kind of look at their life. And then when they do realize they're sensitive, they look back and they recast all these experiences through the light of sensitivity. And they're like, this makes so much sense. And it's not only an eye opener, it's a healing. It's a healing function when you recognize you're sensitive because then you know you're you're part of a larger community. You're not an anomaly. I love that. And and, and you belong. And you're not you're you not isolated. Belonging. Yeah, you have belonging. And so once you feel like you belong, everything opens up in a new way. And then you 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 try to achieve balance and then you embrace the gifts and then you champion, you know, the things that you are passionate about in your life in a new way and know that you're you're right on, you know, you're on point. Don't give up. Absolutely. I, I'm going to ask you this. What is the message that you wish to convey the most with your book to our audience? That you're okay, that you are okay, that there's nothing wrong with you, that you were born the way that you were to have these innate abilities for, um, for yourself, but also for society. It helps society. And so the fact that the matter is when we're not healed, when we're not whole, we can't really help it ourselves, let alone anyone else. But when we are whole, when we are balanced, we are incredible assets for our communities. So that's what I write into the book to try to to try to prop people up by saying, look, if you're an empath and you have a compassionate facet of that empathy, you're going to be great in social justice. You're going to be great in legal. You're going to be great, you know, as a, a chaplain. And then I go into the spiritual empaths and I really give names to these different facets of the gift so people can go, oh, that's me, right? And see themselves like a mirror with the book. So my main point is you're okay. Not only are you okay, you will really thrive and life becomes beautiful and you don't need to be hobbled by your, by your gifts. That's my point. I like your message of acceptance. That's Definitely. beautiful. I mean, think about it. You welcome everyone who has a unique ability within themselves that you can say, you know what? You're normal. You're okay. And you're welcome here. Yeah, because a like lot of powerful. times, a lot of times there's a stigma attached to sensitivity, like, oh, they're <laughs> so sensitive or, oh, they cry or, you know, and, and there is this umbrella that it's a weakness that we're weak, that we're weaker. And uh, I took umbrage at that when I had my own awakening process because I thought this isn't a weakness. This is a an advantage. This is a strength. I mean, to be able to save lives, to be able to Absolutely. listen so deeply and attuned so, so finely to what's needed in a situation that you actually can see an emerging threat arise is not weakness. So I know that that's not everybody's experience, but that's where I was coming from because I had seen it happen over and over and over again. And I, I felt like I had something to say about that. And I felt like if I didn't say something about it, that I wasn't 
living my truth. So I didn't talk about the abilities for a long time or my personal experience. I mean, I wrote a couple books about them as a cathartic thing to process what had happened. But this book was really intended to take my personal ego out of it so that the message could come through in a way that was completely elevating to the sensitive dialogue that's out there in the communities as they are. And hopefully the people who need it will find it. I haven't done a lot of promotion. I've just been setting my intention that the people who need it find it. And so I've been getting great emails from people who are like, oh my God, I finally feel like somebody knows me for the first time in my life. That's validating to me that people find it and see themselves in the book. And so I know that I, I did the right thing. I did the right thing. It's interesting that you're bringing up the, the sensitive stigma thing. And I was going to ask you, one of my questions was, how do you feel we can remove the, the stigma that society places on the term sensitive so that we can help people kind of understand this whole dynamic better? Well, I think that stories are wonderful. And so stories are what shape the dialogue. And I think the reason why I started to share my own personal story was because it was such a powerful truth about how sensitivity did save lives in that. I mean, I don't know what the other alternative reality was if that building uh, would have burned down. Horrifying. You know, it is horrifying to think about. And then uh, I feel like sharing stories from other people will build a snowball effect where you start to see that this doesn't just happen in a vacuum. It is a phenomenon. It's a real phenomenon. And the book Science explains this phenomenon of um, you know, neural and anatomical differences that sensitive people have. And so once you start to see the research and build the snowball and sharing stories, it becomes a worldwide phenomenon. It's not just a one on a one off or, you know, a side thing that's happening by somebody who's just extremely hypersensitive. It's probably happening a lot of the time. And so sharing stories, I think, is the first step for sensitives to get together and build community and and um, open up a little bit. And then you start to develop that trust and know that you're not alone. I think that the other thing is to continue to share the messages of hope around sensitivity, that it's not crippling or debilitating. Everybody's different. It can be crippling. It can be debilitating. But with the right healthcare strategy, like self-care, it doesn't have to be as painful. You don't have to feel like you're a raw, open nerve all the time. So I think that those two things coupled together will create a movement where it can, we can, we can shine and we can lose some of the stigma. It'll be, it'll be a reshaping of what sensitivity really is. Paradigm shift, basically. It's one of my favorite words I always use, paradigm yes. shift. How we look yeah. at it and how we perceive it and what we think of it. We're a part of it. You and I are part of it. Yeah, you know, we exactly. had the courage. We had the courage to look within and say, "Do I do I hide my light under a bushel, <laughs> or do I share my story and do I walk the walk and do I stand proud?" And so, you know, not everybody's going to agree. Not everybody's going to believe. And um, and that's something that I struggled with for a long time was trying to share there's something here and other people basically saying individuals who weren't as sensitive, they just said, I don't have that experience. You know, what and I love, so, you know, it's it, it's sensitive sharing the experience to build right. the momentum that it is a real phenomenon and it is a blessing. You know, I think this is, too. It's a form of healing, healing for oneself healing mm -hmm. for others. Cause when I do, when I do readings with people and it's not just all professional readings, it's like when I'm in a Uber and I can sense someone being depressed and I start picking up stuff and give them like a, you know, a reading as they're driving me to my next spot. Let's say I hadn't given a reading in a few days and I'm kind of ready to give a reading. 
I just start reading this person. Next, you know, do you really? Yeah, that's what happens <laughs> in my life. It really does. But it, I find that as like something, you know, there's a healing attribute to it. It's not a, it, once you get past oh, your definitely. ego with it. Because for many years, I was stuck in my own ego for 10 years. I was like, I can't let this get out. I'm a lawyer. I'm in five states. And if I lose my license, I wouldn't lose my license for being psychic. But I'm like, it could tarnish, you know, people thinking what, who's this guy coming to the courtroom? Is he going to know what happens after it, it, you know, after the hearing concludes? Is he, is he aware of what's going on? Can he talk to my dead grandmother? Like, you just never know how those things can play out. And I've been blessed yeah, with timing. It, blurs. Out the right it, it does. Yeah, it does tend to blur. When you're, when you're, um, I liked what you said about holding the line in your career. Yeah. Because I think that those structures are well established and silo like almost in their ethics yeah. and, you know, the whole world of law, you know, it's like medicine, the bar and everything, yeah. you regulate yourselves, you have these high standards and, you know, everything is written to the rule of the law. And so any kind of diversion, you know, from that silo, it does create a ruckus. So I'm glad that you're keeping things on the straight and narrow, but you're still being open about who you are because there's no doubt about it that the gifts help in our professions it's how you use it and it's how you communicate about it and so i have tried to hone the subtle art of not talking about it i don't really talk about it in my work i work in a clinic i work with doctors and nurses and very professional people in a care center a wellness center for corporate medicine corporate healthcare. and so i i don't talk about the book only only privately I don't, you know, like spread my, my message around or my thoughts. I do my job. And if somebody asks me, then yeah, I share, but I've gotten to the point now where it's not compartmentalizing. I just don't need to be so open about it that it's flooding over or I'm spilling out on everybody. And I didn't have that ability at one time when I was working at, um, Harborview Medical Center, I just wanted to talk about it after that experience happened because I was so profoundly moved that I was like, you're searching for others. I was searching for others or people in the field who understood this phenomenon and they didn't and they didn't want to talk about it. And I was perceived even had some people come back to me, colleagues say, you've got to stop talking about this because people think that you're mentally ill. And I was like, awareness. So, hey, that was a long time ago and things have yeah. come a long way. Now we know about compassion fatigue. Now we understand secondary stress. Now we understand that empaths and counselors pick up, you know, the trauma from other people they're working with and experience it themselves and are affected by it. So it's the language we use. It's the language we use and it and there's a time and a place. So I don't spill out like I used to. And I think that's because I've developed myself. I've developed myself over time. It's been 20 years since then. We evolve every day, right? I mean, as I'm describing your evolution. I'm asking this question. How about this? How about coming out on social media with your book? Or I mean, there's different ways of coming out psychically, right? Or intuitively. I have. Yeah, no, I have. I have. When people ask me, I'm very honest. I talk about the fire story. I, I debated about it. I debated about it and, and I thought, you know what? No, I just, I need to be honest about why this all came about. I, you know, I want to be my true self because I'm very authentic. Like what you see is what you get. Exactly. You know, big big exactly. hair, don't care. <laughs> so it's like, you know, yes, I am psychic and I have, um, I, I have developed it over time. I don't hang a shingle up and be psychic, but you know, I explored ways to use that as, you know, a psychic counselor or to work for maybe law enforcement. I was trained by an FBI profiler for a period of time and she helped me hone the abilities. It was mostly to keep me and my daughter safe at the time because we were still kind of in dangerous situations 
with my ex and my former history. So it was a survival mechanism is how I saw it. Cause the warnings when it came out was like a gunshot, right? That first dream was like, boom. And I was like, oh, this is important. So my awareness went to the data, the information, the guy, the judge, the car, the, the drugs in the back. I mean, we weren't involved with any of. But you just knew. Would, well, yeah. So somehow the psychic uh, prophetic dream happened in reality, not that long after. Now, that is not always the case for psychics, but for me it was. And so I think that's the thing that fascinated me. Why is this happening? I couldn't let it go. And I think people are interested in that. Like, why are you psychic? And so the book <laughs> kind of goes into the reasons why, because it's my was my lifelong search to understand it. I can understand that. I can definitely understand that. Yeah. I, uh, I want to ask you this. We're talking in your book about sensitivity. Um, there's a science to it. I want to ask you, what do you consider to be the science of sensitivity and the abilities of the highly sensitive from what you've researched and reviewed? A lot of books talked about sensitivity. It became really hot, a hot topic like five years ago, and it kind of was hitting critical mass. And But you didn't hear much about the empath. Intuition was out there. Psychics were out there. And so they were talking about, yes, you can be more psychic. And you'd see things like that. Well, I kind of stopped reading stuff like that a while ago and started shifting into trauma and started shifting into clinical, deep clinical analysis as to why that I thought these two were connected. And I read a book by Judith Herman called Trauma and Recovery. And when I read that book, I'm telling you, it was like... Once again, finding something that was like, oh my God, this is me. And so I started to once again, pay attention to my dreams because my dreams have been guiding me all along. Like you need to be doing this. Stop fooling around. <laughs> like there's an urgency behind it. Like you're not living to your potential. You could be helping. That's the message. You could be helping. You need helping to be helping. helping. Right. And I'm like, helping with what? Helping with what? You know, like it seemed like there was a real destiny about all this. So I just kept digging and digging and digging. And when I found the trauma in a new way, because I, of course, learned about trauma, I worked in a trauma center, all of that, right? But when I started to look at it upon myself and my own historical recollection, I started to think about things in a new way. And so I just dove deep down into trauma. And I feel like it's interwoven in this book. I break it out in a very real way without traumatizing the reader. I try to share my hypothesis about why this exists. I believe trauma is a big part of it, whether it's intergenerational trauma from multiple generations above the sensitive. I think the genes got turned on for the ability to perceive danger, the ability to um, have that ultra sensitivity to sound, light, sensation, so that they could perceive, you know, safety or harm. Like so a that's that's the root level. Okay. That's like the root level survival level. And so then in the research, I found that it was called the biological sensitivity survival strategy. You know, that's what the researchers call it. So I was like, okay, but they don't know what it is. They do not know what that means. They can say that, okay, sensitives can be able to perceive microfacial exp expressions, more fine body language. Mm -hmm. They can look at the language that somebody's using and their semantics and break that down and interpret it in certain ways through their sensitivity. 
they see faces and might have facial recognition and they they have anxiety more because the faces that they do perceive, if they perceive them as negative, then they'll experience more anxiety. So there's so much research if you go about it the right way. And what I wanted to do was to take the work that Dr. Elaine Aaron already did and build off of it. And so a lot of people call me the bridge, the esoteric bridge between science and esoteric metaphysical wow. um, pr proof. And that I'm a bridge writer that brings things together to help us evolve. And so I do think that I did that. I, I think I nailed that. And I feel like trauma is one part of it. The traumatic experience when we're younger, especially when we're little, is, you know, the ability to perceive oncoming threats in our environment. But it is also being open being open and how children are able to stay open through that early childhood development. I think that's why sensitivity is as prevalent as it is in our society right now. And since we just went through the pandemic, we're more sensitive because one, the other thing that the studies have shown is when you isolate yourself from society, you become more sensitive. So everybody, our whole society, because we just went through this huge complex trauma together, worldwide, we're all going to be more sensitive right now, more than we ever have before, because it's an, it's an evolutionary mechanism. We're isolating, right? We're just coming out of isolation. And so I feel like the children that are going to be born now are going to be so sensitive. I can see it's that. Genetic. It's genetic. We just went through a global worldwide communal trauma together. So that's going to make the genes even more uh, predisposed. Spiritual awakening. There will be renaissance. Yeah. And so I feel like the adults that have gone through this, figured it out, are working in it, have to help the new generations that are coming in because trauma is not going to go away. I mean, I wish we could say I wish we could say that it was. But I feel like as leaders in the field, we need to be able to have messaging that does speak to healing because hypersensitivity is not helpful. It's just not. I mean, you can be out on that spectrum as far as you can go. And it really does have a crippling quality to it. You can't really function. So we need to learn about the biological sensitivity strategy and what it means and how to work with it to help our population heal so we can evolve more. Absolutely. I want to ask you because we're, we're, I want to ask you about the four types of highly sensitive people. And the first one is a sensitive empath. If you could explain that to our audience in terms of how you found that that actually is a label associated with a group of people who have that higher level of sensitivity. Well, empaths are able to feel sensations, emotions, currents of moods, and sometimes even thoughts like thoughtful feelings in their own body, in their own mind and body. And that sounds like mysticism, but it's actually a real phenomenon where empaths feel what other fe others feel in their own bodies as if it were their own. Absolutely. It's not just a, a, a sensation or a guess or an educated guess about how somebody else is feeling. It's a visceral embodied sensation that somebody else has in the environment. Now, take that and magnify it times 100, <laughs> where you have multiple people, you have conversations, you have relationships. So empaths feel uh, feelings of other people. They're able to attune to environments, situations, workplaces, 
everything. So there's different types of empaths. It's not just having deep empathy. It's also being able to sense how your empathy works. So there's physical, geomantic, cognitive, um, environmental. And I go into that in the book and empath chapter is quite, um, detailed so that people who have deep empathy can try to figure out what kind they have. There's a compassionate empath. There's a spiritual empath. And I mentioned that a little bit, that the careers that these individuals will just shine in if they embrace it and, and take care of themselves in the right way. Um, so empathy is something that we all have. We need more of it. Some of us, <laughs> most of us, most of us have it. Many over hundred different species have empathy. It's part of animal and human behavior. I think that the, the difference is in the highly sensitive gifted empath is that they have such a extreme to it. And so there is the feeling of the sensations and then there's the depth of it. And so you have the feeling, the initial feeling, the depth of it, which is like the quality or how much it affects the person and their own emotions. And then there's the reactivity. So the way I always explain it to empaths, if you think you're an empath, it's going to come through your emotions and your emotions are going to be lightning fast. That's why a lot of times the false label of mental illness is used for empaths because empaths have such lightning fast emotional reactivity that it seems like they're very erratic. They could feel sadness, depression, anxiety. They could feel anything. It runs the gamut of the emotions they feel. It'll start, they'll be deeply affected by it. And then if they leave the environment, they're okay. Wow. And so that's one of the other piece of advice I give to empaths. If you're in a situation that you're totally overcome, you don't know why you're crying, you're feeling grief, leave the situation, leave the room, go for a walk in nature. And if it resets, that's your central nervous system resetting itself. And then you're feeling the peace and the calm. That's you versus the emotions that you were feeling from someone else who was projecting them into the room and you were picking up on them. Let's, let's talk about the sensitive intuitive and how that differs from the sensitive empath. I love, well, these, I, love your, I love your breakdown because now I have some terms I can use when people ask me about their highly sensitive abilities. You're a sensitive empath and you're a sensitive intuitive. It's, it's, it has a good ring to it. Yes. Explain and use the terms. It helps. And I use multiple kinds of terms in different ways for different people who have different learning styles or, or saying it in different ways so they could hear it, you know, multiple ways. Intuitives are the exquisite exquisite processes or processors of information they're receiving so much information into their subconscious all the time that they don't even know they're doing it okay so they're always on attention they're always on perceptions open sifting sorting but they're not consciously aware so all of that storehouse of information is in their um you know in their back you know closet if you want to look at that way and so when they have to make a decision they go into the subconscious, right? And it comes into awareness immediately. So they have lightning fast processing to get the right answer. And it's not just problem solving. It goes beyond logic. It's an intuitive reasoning that comes through and they have a gut sensation that they know it's right. They know it's right. They don't know how they know it's right, but they know it's right. And there's clarity around it. They have the ability to perceive patterns and interconnectedness between different people, corporations, businesses, the environment, the world at large. And they're looking at it from that frame of mind. And it's almost like invisible spider webs where they're making these connections between things and lighting and lighting up 
when they see them. So that's why when you hear about people like Steve Jobs, who saw the handheld device decades before that, he was like, I need to create this thing, right? He saw it through an intuitive sense of this could be provided through Macintosh. And so you can see intuitives at work and you can see how they apply it at work, but they might not even know that they have it. So, yeah, they're also like as similar to empaths, they read body language, they read microfacial expressions, they take a whole bunch of information into their cognitive storehouse and then sift through it and get what they need. So that's intuitives there. There are so many different layers to that. I go into I'm it. Sure. In the book. Yeah. And for our you, show, we can only do you need to go to the intuitive chapter yourself and, and check it out because I go into oral intuition. I go into kinesthetic intuition. I go into the different types. Wow. That's great. So that's a, that's the intuitives. And so the intuitives could have an empathy. You could be an empathic intuitive. You could be an empathic um, expressive. You, I mean, so they, they overlap and you get this convergence of gifts that come together and it really- It's not just one lane. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing when you start to see how they work together. That's why I call it the multiple intelligence theory of sensory awareness, because I've experienced that myself where- I had no idea how I got the answer, or I had no idea that the subtle perception was so fine, but there did seem to be an intelligence to it, which was basically like, here's the answer. And so I always encourage people to pay attention because we're receiving so much and processing so much. We miss a lot because we're just at hyperspeed. Oh yeah. I meditate a lot during this pandemic. And one of the things Good. I picked up from meditating was that I believe that people who are like amazing athletes, like LeBron, or amazing celebrity, whatever it is, if you're an artist, a performer, a musician, an athlete, whatever it is, a psychic on TV, or whoever, that people have strong intuitive abilities that give them those gifts. We just call it different things. And I feel like a Mozart or a Rembrandt or whoever it is, they had strong intuitive abilities and they might have been even highly sensitive, but they were able to channel those gifts into such a way that they became this extraordinary gifted recognized person in their own sense of art or whatever it was. Absolutely. It's a talent. It's a talent. And so when you notice that talent as a parent or as a community member and you see the talent, some people are fortunate and that they have a teacher or a coach or a parent that helps them develop it, to develop the talent. And so these talents come through in very real concrete ways, like LeBron, right? Or like a, a Rembrandt, where you can actually see the product of the training. I think the slippery slope that happens with things like intuition and the reason why there's been so much controversy about it, it's like an invisible phenomenon, but it's not. Like you're saying, if you break it down and you hear the stories of the individuals, they're always just like, oh, I just gravitated to it, or I knew, or I was in love with this, and then they develop it. And so intuition is is a silent phenomenon, but it also has real world application. You know, interesting you say that, because I was thinking, well, how would this change if it became accepted with, you know, what we're talking about, if this became a widespread accepted and wide, wide, wide acceptance in mainstream society? Can you imagine like, how it could change HR, how it could change industrial organizational psychology, how the work environment could change if you apply for a job as a highly intuitive. I know. <laughs> could you imagine? Know. We're like, looking for a highly, that... intuitive a, a highly intuitive applicant with visionary qualities for problems. Think about how that could be so innovation. Indeed. You know, I mean, if it was written that way, you, you know, you got to... 
you got a you got a whole different playing field. And so I work in a like I said a very professional clinical center and one of the things that I love about it and that drew me to this place is they talk about empathy, using empathic listening in their healing model. And so that's all I needed. I was hooked. I was like, "Oh, good." And so at least that part is addressed. So I think what you're talking about is unfolding. And I think that the science is, is there. It's there. I mean, I've been waiting for years and years for the science, just digging and digging and digging, you know, like trying to ferret out this stuff. But now it's, it is there. You have to look for it and you have to be connected to individuals who are sharing it because then you can see how it's, you know, emerging, but it is emerging. And I think now that some of the studies in this book have been um, written about, Word's going to spread even more. And so the intuition research is really going off right now because there's an area of the brain that they have connected to these type of intuitive experiences, which are very esoteric, hearing voices, seeing discarnate beings. Exactly. Um, you know, uh, having uh, intuition and getting answers and um, seeing, they call them hallucinations in the study, but like seeing apparitions, seeing lights in the sky. And these intuitive people that they studied, the hundred of them had this anatomical, neuroanatomical difference in their brain. And so then they opened it up and look at their families and they found that the families had it as well. So it is genetic. Wow. They don't, they don't know what it means. They're reluctant to produce their uh, results in, in journals, right? Because this was sponsored by the CIA, but still it's it's been talked about. So all the other people who see this, who are interested in it, are going to study it too. And there's going to be no holds barred because all these academic communities want the same type of study to be done at their own research centers. So I have a feeling in the next 10 years, the intuition studies are going to be off the charts off the charts and there's going, to be new, there's going to be new discoveries and i i predict that it'll be connected to different parts of different parts of the brain and 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 that there's this you know expression in certain individuals i also believe that there will probably likely be other things that are uncovered in the sensory nervous system that have never been found before so i i do believe that we're on the cutting edge the intuitives the sensitives because we're we're, we are the biological like bellwethers for society to keep safety at the front, at the forefront for our evolutionary development. It doesn't mean that we don't have pain and suffering. We do. I'm not saying it comes without, you know, you know warts or whatever, because it's, mm -hmm. it's warts and all. But once you start to see that you can bring things under control, bring things into balance and experience less pain and you're in control of it, you kind of then get motivated <laughs> you know, oh, yeah, to, sure. to live to live without so much drama or to live without so much trauma, to live in a place of peacefulness with yourself. And that's what, what I hoped and intended for with the book. So visionaries are next. I go into visionaries yeah. and I go into the expressive. So visionaries are the people that are like, there's so many, once again, facets of visionary experience. So there's different types of visionaries. You, usually they have this mental field right in front of their eyes that they're able to call the mind's eye up. So when they're trying to solve a problem, they go into their mind's eye, which is this imaginal place in front of their regular visual field where they solve problems. They turn things over. They look at things differently. <laughs> they put things together. You know, they run schematics. I mean, they can do it on boards, too, where they use whiteboards. They'll use whiteboards to take the mental field out and apply it to. But it's, that's still only one dimensional. So their their ability really is to take things in three and four dimensionally and turn it all over and then use that subtle depth perception and visual acuity to solve problems. So 
they're engineers, they're video cinematographers, they're, um, they're construction planners, they're city planners, they're architects, they're feng shui practitioners. I mean, it, it gets so amazing when you start to see the different parts of it. And so the, the right hemisphere and the brain has all these amazing qualities for pictures, imagery, facial recognition, um, geometric shapes, mapping, spatial awareness and so the visual visionaries have all of that in spades but then when you talk to the visionaries they'll go oh no i don't experience it that way but i have this so you have to get into conversation with them and hear the process for them to get about how they apply it yeah because there's no like box for this stuff you have to go okay so she's she's going out of her right hemisphere and she's using facial recognition but she's also got this technical ability i mean so that's the part that i love is talking to them hearing their stories how they've made it work and um there's usually also with visionaries there is a different way they learn so there might also be a learning disorder that you, um, you know, has gone undiagnosed or then eventually gets diagnosed. And one of the writers that I read, um, The Upside of Brilliance, Dr. Silverman, she said that all these kids that she was studying were brilliant. They were brilliant and they were visual and creative. And then they would take the test and they would vomit. But their high Q was in like the 145, 165 range or higher. So they had dyslexia. And so it's interesting because dyslexia is so difficult to identify. It's not something in the schools that is like championed to identify it. Like we see with autism or ADHD now, they want to address it. So visionaries kind of do run in that trend where they learn differently. They might not have dyslexia, but when you start to talk to them and you see the way they've evolved, it's a learning difference. They have a big learning difference. That's interesting. And think about it, that could impact education. When you think about education, it could impact somebody who, who may have to work with. I know. I know. And it's a crying shame because you have these highly exceptional, creative individuals mm-hmm. who are just problem solving like like nobody's business. And maybe they they can't they have difficulty reading. And so there's this shame associated with it. And they carry that for a long time until they really hit their stride. So that's visionaries. And then there's the expressives. And the expressives are they have an aesthetic awareness. So they have this perception for beauty and subtlety and, and they describe it as qualities and feeling qualities, mostly similar to empathic ability. So empathic and expressive overlap a lot. They overlap a lot. And so the expressives use their perception and their fine, subtle uh, awareness of beauty to express it and synthesize that in art forms that they find meaning. And it's not just meaning for themselves, it's usually meaning for society, like societal humanity uh, issues. And so whenever I see somebody who is struggling with depression or anxiety, it could be expressive, that they're not letting the expressive creative energy come through because that literally makes them sick because it's part of their personality. So you see these individuals who are artists, yeah, artists, literary reviewers, uh, actors, designers, creators, uh, narrators, uh, game developers. I mean, it it starts to get into really fascinating uh, fields when you start to apply the gifts. I tell close friends and family members that my podcast is like my creative outlet and it helps me with therapy. It's therapeutic to me. You're describing probably me being an expressive in certain form where I need to have a microphone in front of me to express myself and to talk to amazing people like yourself 
and sharing these awesome to. ideas. You but, have to have that creative part of yourself or you'll feel shut off, stagnated. Yeah. Yeah. Stagnated. Sad. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Or you'll feel like you're tamping down your wellspring of, of, you, of you, the beautiful you. And so that's why the artists, whenever there are movements, look to the artists because they're tapping into that um, subterranean place of the human experience and the muse. And they're, they're lit up by the divine spark of creation. And what comes through there is usually societal issues that they're they're magnifying for society look at in a mirror and say look and that's meaning it's meaning it's the heart and soul of our society so we we need to go back to protecting our artists and treating them with with reverence respect and and appreciation and put them on a pedestal they deserve it we need it yeah yeah i think it was coretta scott king who said you know in times of despair support the artists absolutely we're running low on time. Is it okay to go I minutes with you? I, I, I enjoy this so much. I just want to tell you, your book is, it's like music to my ears because you're, you're giving me these great, I, I would just have to say a wealth of, 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 of a resource to look at, to turn to, that this is going to be on my nightstand, but it's also going to be at my, on my desk. Because when people call me for readings or when people want to know, how do I express what I'm dealing with, I could say, well, there's a book here. Go to Courtney's book and check out if whether or not you're an empath, you're a sensitive, you know, you're expressive or whatever it is. It, it's, you know, it's great. I, I, I really enjoy that you've broken this down like that. I wrote it for people like you. Use the highlighter. Interpret it yourself. Get your own insights. (laughs) Got that right here. Yeah, get your own (laughs) insights. Break it down. Parlay what I'm saying into your own educational stuff that you're gonna get. You're gonna get insights out of it, and then you know you can just break it down your way and share it your way and use it. That's why I wrote it. So people could use it like a little encyclopedia and be like, oh, wait, what was that section on felt sense? And what is what works for the felt sense? Don't ignore your sensory warnings, you know, like (laughs) you've got the tools, you got the toolkit, use it. Might as well utilize it. Yes. And help your clients with it, too. It works. I will tell you that I didn't put anything in there that I didn't try myself and that I didn't know was proof positive that it works. I love that. I want want to ask you if our audience wants to reach you, where would be the where you would direct them to go? I'm online. I have an online presence. So all you have to do to go is to inspired potentials. And if you're curious about your own gift, take the test and the test is free. It's always available. I look at each test individually. I analyze it old school, you know, so I take the time and then I write you a nice little uh, email. Hey, this is your gift. Or if you have multiples and then I explain them and I also explain the level, like some people are just extreme. And I say that you're at the highest possible range. Then I also say you have this significant range or it's just positive. So it's a bit of a strength. And then I ask them, invite them to communicate with me if they want to discuss the results. Because there's always questions. There's invariable questions or I haven't read the book. So I leave myself open to those um, free consultations so they can have questions and answers. Because I I want to be responsive to sensitives no matter where I I am, no matter what I'm doing. I mean, that's a, that's, that's like a homework assignment. Go to your website, get inspired potential, inspired potentials.com. You got it. Take the test and get evaluated and let's see where you're at. If you have these concerns, you can at least start understanding yourself better and, and 
and really getting a, yes. a good idea of what to do to help your situation because you have these effective strategies in here as well. So Yes, and I use my intuition. So that's the other thing. I don't call it a reading. I call it a connection, the sensitive mm -hmm. connection where we connect. But in those sessions, I listen deeply with my own empathy. And so I listen to what's going on and then I provide that intuitive feedback. I'll ask you this. If you were a spirit animal, which spirit animal would you be and why? Oh my gosh. <laughs> a tiger. And why? Because tigers are fiercely independent, you know, but they're also very loyal. And so I'm fiercely independent. I'm so independent. I can't even handle it. And, but I'm also incredibly loyal, which seems like those two things wouldn't exist at the same time that there would be this rogue element where you don't necessarily have the loyalty piece. But I think that those two characteristics I've had my whole life is loyalty and independence, fierce independence. So yeah. And tigers are very fuzzy and woolly and you know. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I always say, yeah. owl. I always say owl on each episode. Owls are cool. Cause I have two parrots and I love birds and I, I love the 360 idea of having wisdom from all around and just having the ability. Oh yeah. To that's my funny. kids in Alaska, you know, we have owls here outside and you can maybe see the trees from out my window, but we're backed up next to the forest. And uh, okay. last fall we had a, an owl out here and all the kids were looking at it and it was doing this. <laughs> you know, one of these, one of these. Yeah. And then there was another one that came to roost and then the other one was doing this, you know, <laughs> and we've got to see the head and the eyes. We all just stood there watching them. And then there were ravens, ravens high above, and they were all together and they were circling. And it was like the showdown in the treetops. And we were just enamored. We just watched <laughs> like this. And then a lynx, then a lynx showed up like two days later. all of nature and one little, I mean, that's Alaska. That's why you live in Alaska. That's why it's Ooh, amazing. Wall of it. And so I'm totally into the animals, you know, because the animals have medicine too. Huge healing abilities, I believe. Those parrots helped get me through this pandemic when I was by myself and isolated for a while. And uh, animals, man, great to have animals around you. It really, they're beautiful. Awesome. They're beautiful. I I love the owl, and um, there's so much wisdom. But there's you know there's movement. You don't know it, but there's movement going on in that neck. Absolutely. There's intent. There's intent. I, I want to thank you for coming on. You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. Let's stay in touch. Good. I just want to thank Courtney for coming on the show. Four Gifts of the Highly Sensitive. It's an amazing book. I highly recommend it. I actually consider it a reference piece. This isn't just a book to read. This is a reference piece that you keep out on your coffee table. You keep it out on your bed, but you know, nightstand next to the bed and, and thumb through it, research it. Look, look at the research you've done and, and take the test on the website. Go to www.inspiredpotentials.com, take the test, evaluate which of the highly sensitive areas you fall into. This can help you. It can help you cope with your ability. It can help you actually understand yourself better and in, in essence, heal others. That's a, what I get from these abilities is you can use your gifts to heal other people in many different ways. And, and that's where a lot of our unsung heroes are. They heal others and they do it in a quiet way and they never let anyone else know that they have this intuitive nature to them or some type of highly sensitive gift. So look into it and keep an open mind. I know we talked about a lot of stuff today that some of you might kind of think about, but not really fixate on. I'll say this. If you feel that you're a highly sensitive person, you have someone to reach out to, reach out to Courtney. I really do think you will be very glad that you did. 
go to inspiredpotentials.com. And I'm just so glad to have her on the show today. And, and what an amazing topic to, to have as, as, as an offering to each of you. And I, I just want to tell you, we've been through a lot going forward. It's going to get a lot better for us on a daily basis, slowly and gradually, it's slow and steady. It's going to get better. Hang in there. I've already started glimpses, seeing glimpses of this. And I know for each of you who feel overwhelmed and, and stressed out, things are going to get better for you going forward. So just keep that in mind. Stay positive because when you're positive, anything is possible. And we're going to have more content coming your way. Feel free to support the show. If you have any questions, you can always email me at info at the letter D, socialpsychicradio.com. And uh, I'm always welcome to receive emails. And Thank respond. you for listening so to much. this episode of the Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook and don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind, embrace your paradigms and know that the universe is always yours to explore. Electric acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage, behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your hosts for The, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Electric Acid. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonize your mind, body, and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together, we explore vibrations, frequencies, and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress, and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Electric acid.